Not many people can claim to be a balloon pilot, a storm chaser, a wedding photographer, nature photographer, auto racing photographer, and even an educator. But one person can put all of those on their resume. Canon Explorer of Light, Ken Sklute. I'll speak with him about one of his shots of the Aurora on this episode of Behind the Shot. Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Shot, where we try and get inside the mind of photographers by taking a closer look at some of their work from conception to post-production, editing, and all those little stories that happen in between. I'm your host, Steve Brazel, and today's guest is somebody that is uh, a part of a very unusual small group of people. Uh, this person is a Canon Explorer of Light. There's only, my understanding is 42 in the world, and, and Ken, you can clear me up on that. But ladies and gentlemen, this is Ken Sklude. How are you doing, Ken? I'm oh, wonderful, Steve. Thanks for having me. One of the things that first struck me about you is you shoot a lot of different things. When, when people ask you, what kind of photographer are you? What, what answer do you give? Often the first word is diverse. Um, you know, I've been a people shooter for a very long time with landscape and many other um, passions that I've tied together. But I, what, what I'm able to get out and inspire people to do is not necessarily have one type of work, but just, you know, photography is held together in my, in my uh, estimation, by it's kind of like a wheel and a hub. You know, if you understand the hub, which is usually composition, light, and a few other things, you can branch out and take any of those, one of those spokes and capture magnificent images. So I, I just enjoyed a pretty diverse career. So really, what you kind of just said is the, the fundamentals and foundation of photography, the old saying, light is light. Mm -hmm. uh, if you understand an exposure triangle and how to interpret your subject, you can really apply those skills to any subject? Absolutely. You know, lighting a person is the same thing as lighting a building, which is the same thing as lighting a car, which is the same thing as lighting food. So I, I look at it, just understand depth, dimension, and as you mentioned, the, the triangle, and you've really got photography kind of covered. Interesting. And in looking at your website, there's there's four areas specifically mentioned on your website, because, yes, I went through and I read the, the entire bio, uh, which was not what some people had told me about uh, people, architecture, uh, weddings and landscapes. It does not mention in that bio other than where you started that you used to shoot motorsports. I, I found photography because of drag racing or, or professional motorsports. and. That, that's another kind of avenue that I, I took. Get, I had a kind of a life-changing event uh, in the year 2000, and I decided to get back to my roots, which were drag racing or motorsports. And uh, I've been photographing that for 40 years. I mentioned you're a Canon Explorer of Light. Uh, my understanding of Canon Explorer of Light is there in the entire world is only 40, 42, something like that. What exactly is a Canon Explorer of Light. It's funny. I'm going to kind of jump ahead one second. Most people come up and ask every Canon employee, how do I become a Canon Explorer of Light? Um, and the bottom line is Canon has their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the photographic community. And if, you, if you're out there setting trends, being different, kind of leading the industry, they want you as part of this evangelistic society. 
because what they're looking for us to do, when I go and I give a lecture, be it in a couple of weeks to Julian Starfest in the mountains outside of San Diego or uh, wherever I speak in the country, I'm able to get out there and simply inspire people based upon my experience and my knowledge. So truly, you know, we're getting out there, we're sharing our passion for photography, as well as just, you know, the idea of how to educate people about what you're doing. To give a quick, you know, summary, some of the other Canon explorers of light. I know Rick Salmon is one. Rick Salmon is one. Um, and of course, I go blank on this now. Tyler Stableford, Bruce Dorn. Uh, but if, if somebody Googles Canon Explorer of Light, they will find the page and find all of them. They will find the page on the Canon Live Learning Center website, which is a great resource for most people. You know, we're constantly filling that with educational elements and, and webinars and things to educate people as to what's going on, both with new equipment and new techniques. But absolutely, they can get in there and they can research all the different photographers in every vein of photography. Tied to that, but also independently, you're a lecturer, you're an international teacher, uh, you do your own workshops. In fact, on your website, there's information. You've got workshops coming up in just a couple days this month and then next month, 2015, August of 2015, if people are interested in that. Absolutely. You know, teaching people how to photograph, in my case, the monsoon you know, storm chasing and photographing the nighttime sky, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I have a feeling we're going to cover that in a little bit. This, this was interesting to me. You're a, not only a small plane pilot, which is not super rare. You're a hot air balloon pilot. I am, you know, and, and it's all because of photography. It's funny how I'm, I'm always going to seem to be able to weave this back to kind of the nucleus. Uh, many, many years ago, I went, I would always go exploring. I've been a, a person who has competed heavily with photographs throughout the professional ranks of photographic associations. And one of the things that you always need is subject matter. So I found the way to get out and do different things. And one of them was when I was living in New York, I went up to a hot air balloon festival and in, in a nanosecond, I fell in love with this sport. It's made for photography. You know, it's colorful fabric. It, at beautiful times of day with early morning light or late afternoon light. And once I got to fly, I was addicted immediately. And I ended up buying a balloon without oh, knowing. Wow. I didn't know that you owned one too. Also you're a storm chaser, which we've got to get, do a separate episode sometime just on uh, some of the pictures you have from, from storm chasing. And, and I'll give the website at the end of this, but if people go to, to Ken's website, seriously, the, the, some of the storm stuff is amazing. You mentioned, that you've competed a lot. I, I want to run down some of your history here. You have 14 Kodak Gallery Awards, Kodak Gallery Elite Award, WPPI Grand Award for Weddings. That is not an easy one by any means. 15 Fuji Masterpiece Awards. You are a Kodak and Epson mentor, Adobe influencer, data color expert, and Nick Friends with Vision member. I mean, you've got, you've got a, a history behind you. Your clients... We mentioned auto racing, like the National Hot Rod Association, Sports Illustrated, Oakley, Associated Press. Really, you've kind of shot a little bit for everybody at one point or another. If, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only shoot one thing. Oh, boy. What, I know. I had to, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but if you're st stranded on I didn't say. I could have said if you're stranded on a desert island with only one camera body and one lens, what would it be? That would be a good one. 
but you're stranded on a desert island and you can only shoot one subject. What is your favorite thing to shoot? Strangely enough, I mean, I'd love to just be broad and say landscapes, you know, that really takes in so many different genres. But ultimately, I love shooting the nighttime sky. You have some nighttime sky shots. In fact, you know what? That kind of is a perfect segue. Let's get into your shot a little bit here. Before I bring it up on screen, is there is there a title for this shot? There isn't yet. You know, I'm so backed up on even processing. I just captured this about 10 days ago. I, I, I'm just so in love with this image. Uh, one, of the, one of the fabulous parts of actually photographing the aurora, this is the aurora borealis, and this was captured June 23rd in uh, just outside of Wilbur, Washington, which is in the, uh, the agricultural center of the desert of eastern Washington. I have a question for you because you mentioned it is the Aurora, but you also said it's it's Washington. When I think of the Aurora Borealis, most people think of photographing that from, you know, northern Alaska. Um, People don't think you can shoot the Aurora Borealis from Washington. So explain to me, first of all, what brought you to this location and how you conceptualized this this shot. you know, it, it's so funny in, in asking questions or planting that seed, your, your choice of the word conceptualize the shot that strangely enough, that really is what I wanted to talk about. Um, the, the whole story behind this image, uh, I, this was taken in the month of June of which I'm normally in the tornado alley somewhere between Wyoming, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, that, that whole midsection of our country, which really runs together nine states or so that we may drive through. And I was just finishing a uh, teaching experience in San Diego, a week-long workshop. And I I continually monitor weather. You know, as a pilot, as a a fan of, of weather itself, I watch it every day. And I was deciding at the end of this class where I should actually head when class was done. And my normal return after I teach this week-long class that I do every year is that I fly to Denver, and from Denver I'll drive east somewhere to chase whatever storm is brewing that day. And as this came up, as I was ready to actually get on, a, as, as I was ready to head to the airport, I had gotten notice that there was an aurora. Uh, I guess it was a huge solar flare, because auroras are born of solar flares off the sun. They emit effectively a kind of burp of energy that's thrust 93 million miles to Earth. And what I had done a little research to find out is it was going to be such a strong aurora forecast that it was probably visible in the lower part of North America. And traditionally, the, the aurora is only seen, as you mentioned, from northern type areas, which are generally in the winter. And here I benefited because, you know, we have a few hours of darkness in our northern states as you go up into canada these days there's midnight sun uh same with alaska where it actually doesn't get dark so aurora watching kind of goes into hibernation until about the middle of september so this is just from you said like 10 days ago so this is a summer shot this is in the state of washington there's a lot of people that are trying you know to capture star trails or for that matter, the, the Milky way or stars or whatever, whatever they want. 
And that's fine. And a lot of times they'll get a silhouetted, nice foreground subject like you have here with the tree and the building and the other other items that are man-made on the ground. Mm -hmm. But they don't normally have the combination of stars and brightness from the and colors from the Aurora Borealis because the exposure is such that, to me at least, capturing stars and that bright Aurora have got to be an art in and of itself. I, I looked at your EXIF data on this. Mm -hmm. It looks like it's a 30 second shot. It's a 30 second exposure. Um, in this case, I photographed this on the, the new Canon DS, uh, 5DSR, which is a new 50 megapixel camera. And I mean, I really wanted to see this, this image as sharp as humanly possible. So I believe I made this image of 3200 ISO uh, 30 seconds at f2.8, so wide open on a 14 millimeter lens. Okay, so you capture this thing, and I, I just keep thinking to myself, 50 megapixels has got to be a huge file, but the things you could do with this photo at 50 megapixels. <laughs> but you, you've got this thing in camera at that exposure. Is this close to that? I mean, is this a lot of Lightroom or Photoshop as well, or was this pretty much how it looked? It you don't even know it yet, but you're asking two questions there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna help help you with that. Uh, this is this is exactly what I saw in the back of my camera. I've I've done nothing in in processing to aid this. There's no saturation help. It's a little bit of contrast help, a tiny little bit of noise reduction. But other than that, there's absolutely nothing done to this image. This is virtually straight out of the camera. The the, the dichotomy here is. It's exactly what it looked like on the back of the camera, but visually sitting there in my chair, I have a chair right behind my tripod here. The truth be told here, I couldn't see these colors. This at, is all? at all. There was nothing visible about this. First of all, no saturation, no contrast change, none of that. A little Just bit of contrast. Noise reduction, obviously. Right. Um, how did you know that the Aurora colors were there to shoot? if you couldn't see it. And, and I'm going to answer that. I'm going to start it with one of my favorite lectures that I'm giving these days is a, a program that I've put together called Seeing the Unseen. And I think that's a tribute in itself in that statement. And it really is true that a lot of times as photographers, we put ourselves in a situation and we're photographing something, we're composing for it, we're exposing for it, but it's not visible to us, which to me is the ultimate chase because I think it's hard enough for most photographers to capture a representation of what they can see, let alone in this case now what you can't see. So in having a little bit of experience with photographing the Aurora, one of the things I knew is not to look out with your eyes, but I would, I would just pop off an exposure, generally like even driving up to this location or other locations that I do, I'll pop off a two-second handheld exposure, not looking for anything to be sharp, but you can't really tell the difference between a cloud and the aurora. So what looks like a little gray cloud on the horizon, when you pop off an exposure, because of the cumulative nature of exposure and high ISO, you're able to record this thing. So once I got out to this farm, which is a story in itself. We'll get back to what, what goes into behind the shot. Some of it's making the actual exposure, but one of the things I hope that we get the opportunity to talk about 
is actually finding the way to get, I wanted this trip. I wanted a foreground element. I had flown up to Seattle because I have a good buddy who lives there and I've been sending him out looking for the Aurora. When I get these great forecasts, I would contact my friends around the country and around the world, letting them know, hey, this is a great Aurora night. If you get a chance to head up into the dark sky area, you know, I hope that you can see it. This is worth the effort of going out. And this was one of those forecasts. So my buddy Marv and I jumped in his car and everything north of Seattle up to the Canadian border is very well populated, which means it's very well lit. And we had this light pollution that really inhibits you from seeing a dark sky. So Marv and I kind of powwowed this morning of uh, June 22nd, and we decided we would pick a place in the middle of the agricultural center of the desert of eastern Washington. I'd never been there before, and we just we looked at it on a map and said, here's our target. Let's go to this town. And we drove five and a half hours. We kind of had no idea where we were going. But along the road, when you're in big agricultural areas, there's nothing there but miles and miles of, of field. And Marv was driving, and I was logging in potential foreground elements. Because I think what makes a strong landscape, and especially when you consider the sky, you have to have another element in there. Uh, what maybe most people can relate to is when you have a beautiful sky that lights up at sunset, a lot of people just grab a photograph of the sky and our brains get there. We're instantly tired of it or instantly bored because there's no place for our eye to anchor. So this entire drive out, I'm looking for a foreground of some kind. And normally we can count on a windmill or a, a beautiful tree and I'm happy for that. You know, something that's, that's giving me an element that I can balance the composition and pull this all together. And like I said, we've been driving for five and a half hours and sun is setting. It's just getting into twilight. And I looked and I was about, we were about half a mile away from this house, but I could see it from the road that we were on. And I just suggested to Marv, turn left here. I think I found it. And we came up over the hill, and here was this absolute perfect abandoned farmhouse. And this beautiful, I, I always hope for naked trees because it's just a simple form in the foreground. And um, boy, found it. And strangely enough, the landowner came by to see if we were okay, why we were stopping there, because this isn't a well-traveled area. And we explained what we were doing, and he wished us luck. He said, yeah, you know, feel comfortable. Just uh, be careful. And we walked in about a quarter mile, and I found this tree, which, you know, it looks like it's a grand tree, but this tree is probably only about 12 feet tall. It's really, I consider it a bush. And here it was that I could exaggerate it by getting very close to it with a wide-angle lens, and I could kind of force the perspective. I could create distortion to my advantage. I saw this as a beautiful center composition that had the houses uh, a sort of balance on one side. And as this aurora grew through the evening, this is sort of toward the end of the, uh, the session that I was lucky enough to witness here. All those strong colors are on the left, which you know, I use the word serendipity a lot. You recognize that's the, the basis of my website, Serendipity Visuals. So many times, you know, we set ourselves up 
Louis Pasteur said, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. And I, I did enough research and enough uh, visual awareness of what's going on around me that when I found what I was envisioning in my mind, it kind of brought this whole image together. You mentioned a great center subject, which it is. I love the fact that it is the bear tree. All of it balances so well, even though it's got the heavy building on the right hand side. But again, then you get that. The richness of color fading into stars. Mm -hmm. This 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 shot is almost medit meditative in nature. Well, you know, I am so with you about that. When I when I create images like this, I sit staring at it if it's in digital form where I'm looking at my monitor or very often when I compete with my photographs, I print those photographs and, and they live on display with me for a while that I can just sit in a chair and stare at an image and get lost into it. If somebody, cause there's, there's two elements in here that are difficult for people. First of all, capturing just stars. If you, even if you escape light pollution, people have trouble capturing stars, star trails, Milky way, things like that but you've also got the Aurora. So if somebody today wanted to, to start out trying to shoot that type of subject, mm -hmm. where, where do you tell them to start? Uh, realistically, because we're photographing in the dark, there's going to be a couple little steps here. They need to start by understanding their camera inside and out. So you're not searching in the dark for buttons. But the couple of things that are really important to keep stars looking like stars, unless you're looking to create a star trail where there's movement to the stars, one of the things that you have to consider is the rule of 500, which is a physics property about the lens, the focal length of the lens that you're using, and divided by 500 will give you the longest possible exposure time before you recognize movement in the stars. So, oh, that's a good one. I did not know that rule. And I've always wondered because I, I, I uh, shoot a focally through a telescope periodically. I love photographing the moon and I'll hook it up to my Mead telescope. Um, and people are surprised at how fast those things move. They're constantly moving, which is, and you know, probably from your experience, it's actually us turning. It's the earth turning. So it gives the impression the stars are moving, just like if you photograph. I think most people I know, I remember doing it myself when I first started my photographic career, I would photograph the moon and it was surrounded by black. So the meter would tell you that you needed to leave the camera open for four seconds. And you had this beautiful moon that was now a line. It was an eclipse or ellipse that the moon had moved through the exposure. So we have to work with higher ISOs. And that's something that I think you're, your viewers here are going to kind of embrace is that we have to apply higher ISOs in order to give us a shorter exposure time so that we don't have this movement visible within the stars. If people want to see more of your work of this type of the storm chasing, you've got a wedding shot up there. I'd love to talk to you about sometime. It's I, I'm guessing it's Disney concert hall. It is with the bride on the stairs. I love that shot. Absolutely love it. Uh, if people want to find out more about your photography, your workshops, anything, what's your website? It's serendipityvisuals.com. And then you're also on Facebook, which I, I looked it up. It's Ken Sklute, photographic artist on Facebook. Correct. 
on Twitter, it's at Scluti. Okay. And on Instagram, it's at Scluti. You've also got stuff on Vimeo. And if you go to Vimeo and search for Ken Sklute, you can find Ken there as well. His name's under his picture right here. Uh, but Ken, I cannot say enough how much I appreciate you're coming on, talking about your shot. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been great being able to share this time with you and hopefully inspire some other people to get out. And as you mentioned, I've got some workshops on there and I love talking to people. So be in touch, drop me an email if you have some questions and I'd love to see you in a workshop. And Steve, I hope I'll be back here with you again. All right. So go ahead and check out serendipityvisuals.com. You can find out more information about Ken there. And other than that, Thanks for joining me. Make sure you join us next time as we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a look behind the shot. Mm -hmm.